Welcome to the Chosen People Radio Program, a production of Chosen People Ministries. On this program, you'll hear inspiring stories, learn about messianic apologetics, and discover God's plan for Israel and you. Now let's welcome our hosts, Mitch Glazer, President of Chosen People Ministries, and Robert Walter, our New York Regional Director. Shalom and welcome to the Chosen People Radio Program. My name is Robert Walter, and this episode marks our 130th program. We are so grateful and thankful for you, our faithful listeners. And today we're going to be looking at the end times and the Feast of Tabernacles. Dr. Michael Rydelnik presented this message last year during our Trumpets to Tents conference. So let's get started. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to get it out because we're going to work our way through Zechariah 14 because it does have real help for us when we look at the, it gives us perspective about the situation in the world. The first perspective that it gives us about the, the bad news all around us, everyone hold on, ready? This world gets a lot worse before it ever gets better. If we think that this is it, we're mistaken. Have you ever heard the expression that the arc of history bends towards justice, it doesn't. It does not. It's going to get worse. And in verses 1 and 2, it shows us that the world really does go from bad to worse before the end. Let's let's listen to verses 1 and 2. A day of the Lord is coming when your plunder will be divided in your presence. I will gather All the nations against Jerusalem for battle. The city will be captured. The houses looted and the women raped. Half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be removed from the city. This is a day of the Lord. The day of the Lord refers to a period that uh, other parts of the Bible describe as the tribulation. At least that's part of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, just like any day in the Bible, there's an evening and a morning. Well, the day of the Lord in the evening has to do with the tribulation period, and the morning is the messianic kingdom. Uh, But this is talking about that part of the day of the Lord. It's a snapshot of the day of the Lord. Uh, Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. And even though this is just talking about Israel, I think the reason why I say this is showing that the world's going to get worse is because the Jewish people are the uh, canary in the coal mine. When things are bad for the Jewish people, it will be bad for the whole world. And in fact, if you read the descriptions of the day of the Lord, the descriptions of the tribulation period, it goes far worse for the nations than even for Israel. But this culminates here. It says the nations are gathered against Jerusalem for battle and the city is captured and the houses are looted and the women are raped and half the city goes off, taken off to exile. It is the worst time in the history of the Jewish people. That's hard for us to conceive of because we've got a lot of bad times. But this is saying this is the culmination of all the bad events. And if it's bad for Israel, it's going to be bad for everyone. Uh, It's pretty bad in and of itself. If you look at other passages in Zechariah, other passages in Scripture, we see that there's far more to it and it gets worse and worse and worse. But I have a bit of encouragement 
even though it gets worse before it gets better. Here's the encouragement. Look at verse two. God is speaking and he says, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. This is not some random act. This is an event orchestrated by the sovereign God of the universe. He is doing it and he has a good purpose. You see, this purpose is he gathers them because there's going to be a good outcome. If you read the cycles of prophecy in Zechariah, it's when all the nations gather against Jerusalem. For example, in Zechariah 12, it says, I will make Jerusalem, verse 2, a cup that causes staggering for the peoples who surround the city. Verse 3, on that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for the peoples. Uh, all who try to lift it will injure themselves severely. You see, What he is saying is he's gathering the nations against Jerusalem and the culmination will be as the nations gather against Jerusalem, finally, the leadership of Israel will recognize that they need their Messiah. And Zechariah 12 says that they will turn to him and cry out to him. There'll be a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem and they will look at me whom they have pierced And they will mourn as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. You see, God is orchestrating this whole thing to bring his beloved people to faith in their Messiah. God's not just doing this randomly. He's in charge and he's accomplishing a good purpose. And the same thing is true for us. Every time we have all these bad things happen in our lives and they do happen. I promise you they do. And if you are one of those people that says, no, nothing bad has happened in my life, let me shake your hand and stand far away from you because something bad is going to happen soon. I don't want the. But it's because of what Paul says, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He's really going to accomplish something good even when we can't see it. God is orchestrating this whole thing. He's in charge. He hasn't stepped down He's still on the throne. And uh, particularly in our lives, I think we think we're so, you know, you may have, we may have had a bad medical report or even a worse medical report or a financial downturn, some sort of crisis in your business. Uh, Who knows? Maybe a relationship that was broken and broke your heart. I don't know what bad thing has happened, but I know this, whatever the misfortune is, God is the one who's still on the throne and he can bring something good out of it. He has an intention to bring something good for it. Uh, In the book, The Horse and His Boy, there's a character named Shasta. This is one of the Chronicles of Narnia. And he is talking with Aslan, the great lion, although I'm not sure he realizes who he is. Aslan is the, the Christ figure in the book. And he tells Aslan that he is the most unfortunate of all children, that his misfortune is greater than any. And from the darkness of the fog, because they're walking together in the fog, Aslan answers him. He says, I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta. There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I just told you there were at least two lions the first night and there was only one. 
but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Aravis. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you as you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion, you do not remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at night, to receive you. Every misfortune that Shasta experienced was orchestrated by Aslan to produce something really good. It all led to the saving of a kingdom at the very last moment. It's an amazing story. By the way, if you want to enjoy yourself in a bad world, do what I do. I read through the Chronicles of Narnia once a year, just for the encouragement. But whatever it is in the story of our lives, whatever bad events in the story of our lives, no matter how it seems to be going wrong, remember that it is God who's writing the script. He's the one putting it together. Whether it's a bad diagnosis or a financial crisis or any other problem, God is the one who can work all things together. So it's going to get worse before it gets better for Israel, for the world, maybe for us. But it is God who's orchestrating. Now, here's a second important principle for us, a second perspective. The world will get better by the hand of God, not the work of humanity. We are always saying we're going to fix everything, and I feel like we've got the opposite of the Midas touch. Instead of turning things to gold, we turn it to something that's not gold. That's what humanity produces. And so here in Zechariah 14, verses 3 through 21, it says what God will do for Israel to correct things for the whole world. Okay? So let's go through them. First, God will rescue Israel. The Lord will go out to fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives will be split in half from east to west, forming a huge valley so that half the mountain will move to the north and half to the south. You will flee by my mountain valley. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah the king. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. This is saying God's going to rescue the people of Israel. How is he going to do it? It says he will go out and fight for them. Verse 3 where it says uh, to go out or to go forth, some versions say. It means to go forth. It's a technical term, to go forth as a warrior. The Lord is going forth as a warrior king. He's the one leading the battle to defend Israel. And he's going to provide a way of escape. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, and it will split so that there's a way of escape for the people who are being besieged in Jerusalem. It's going to be a supernatural event. And then in Revelation 19, before the Lord Jesus returns, it describes the uh, marriage supper of the Lamb. And 
the bride of Messiah, adorned in white clothes, right? That's when the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place. During the day of the Lord on earth, in heaven, there's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then, in verse 11, it describes how the Lord Jesus, riding on a white horse, comes down. That's when his feet are going to stand on the Mount of Olives. That's what it says. And when you read it, in Revelation 19, it says, I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war in righteousness. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore robes stained with blood, and his name is the word of God. And then it says, the armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. Those who were there at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Just in the previous paragraph. So who is it that returns with Yeshua? The saints. The believers. Isn't that? Let me tell you something. The church has a terrible history of anti-Semitism. It's tragic. Not every individual, but just generally speaking. Finally, when the Lord Yeshua returns, the church will find its true destiny to come to the great defense of Israel and save God's chosen people with the Lord Jesus. Isn't that encouraging? And here's the good news. Yeshua doesn't need our help. He gives us the opportunity to do what it is that he always wanted us to do, to be the defenders of his people. Thank God. You know, God will require universal worship in Israel. And this is where we get to the festival of Sukkot. Look at verses 16 through 19. Then all the survivors from the nations, these are the people who knew the Lord that came from the nations that came against Israel. It's not those who came against Israel, but from those nations, there will be believers who were not part of that. And they will come up year after year in the Messianic kingdom to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, and to celebrate the festival of Sukkot, the festival of booths. And it says if anyone doesn't come up to worship the king, rain will not fall on them. The question is, why is it that it's Sukkot that has to be observed? The rabbis teach that the victory described happens at Sukkot. I don't know how they know that. doesn't say when it will be. I think there's a better answer. Sukkot is a festival that always looked forward. And so what better festival for them to celebrate but the Feast of Sukkot, which always looked forward to the day when not just Israel, when the whole world would know him. That's why they have to celebrate Sukkot. And then finally, God will achieve total holiness for Israel. Look at verses 20 and 21. On that day, the words holy to the Lord will be on the bells of the horses. Huh? The pots in the house of the Lord will be like sprinkling basins before the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem, that means in the kitchen, and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. 
Everyone who sacrifices will come and take some of the pots to cook in. And on that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. What is this saying? Well, first of all, this is total holiness. There's not going to be a distinction any longer between the sacred and the secular. It will all be for him. This is pretty cool, don't you think? So what is Zechariah 14 teaching us? I hope it's a little good news for you. You see, Zechariah 14 is saying that the world may be getting worse and worse, but the Lord alone will one day not just make it better, but supremely better. Better than we can even fathom. Better than we can imagine. Let's pray. God, our Father, thanks for this great reminder from the book of Zechariah that you are still on the throne and that you will be recognized as being on that throne through Yeshua in that day. Lord, we give you praise for that. In the name of Yeshua, amen. dwelling place. It was where God dwelled with his people, and its elements show us how to relate with God. After delivering the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, God gave them detailed instructions on how to build this dwelling. Once constructed, the Lord descended on the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud. Curtains separated the whole tabernacle from the rest of the Israelite encampment. In this courtyard was the tabernacle's largest piece of furniture, the altar. A wooden box covered with bronze. The altar was shaped as a square, measuring approximately seven and a half feet long and seven and a half feet wide. From top to bottom, it stood about four and a half feet. Hollow space inside the box allowed priests to insert coals. Above was a bronze grating where priests would lay animals for sacrifice. A horn of one piece with the altar stood at each corner. Four bronze rings under the ledge allowed one to insert carrying poles so the Israelites could transport the altar. Between the altar and the tent of meeting was a bronze laver. Priests had to cleanse their hands and feet here before offering sacrifices or entering the tent. Within the inner tent stood one of the most recognized elements of the whole tabernacle the menorah, a lampstand with three branches that rose on each side to create a total of seven lamps. This solid gold lampstand weighed about 75 pounds. Each lamp was a small cup that the priest would fill with oil to fuel the light. Each branch in the middle of the shaft had almond blossoms. The menorah served a most practical purpose. It was the only source of light in the tent, an eternal light that was never to go out. Also in the tent stood a wooden table covered with gold. On it was to always remain the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence symbolizes God's desire to be with his people. Incense was to burn continuously on the altar. God instructed the priests to replenish the incense every evening and morning. 
A curtain separated the holy place from the holy of holies. The menorah, the altar of incense, and the bread of the presence were all in the holy place, but outside this veil. Like the curtains covering the tent of meeting, this veil was blue, purple, and scarlet, with cherubim, a kind of angel. Beyond the veil, at the far end of the tabernacle, was the ark. The ark was a wooden box covered with gold. It was nearly four feet long. Its width and height were about two feet, three inches. Like the altar, the ark had rings and poles so the Israelites could carry it as they traveled. Within the ark were the two stone tablets on which God had written the Ten Commandments. Later, it contained a sample of manna and the rod that bloomed to reinforce Aaron's leadership. The mercy seat was the ark's lid and features prominently on Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. At each end stood a cherub facing the other with its wings outspread. This cover was made of solid gold. The priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on this mercy seat, symbolizing that the nation's sins were covered for another year. While only the high priest would see it, the mercy seat was the key symbol of atonement that God would forgive his people. Though daily sacrifices on the altar were necessary for payment of sin, it was only through the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement that the stain of sin was washed away. While priests had to make repeated sacrifices, one man offered a sacrifice to atone for sin once and for all. When Jesus, the Messiah, died, he sprinkled his own blood before God, securing atonement forever for all who would trust in him. Jesus cleanses us, makes us pure, and enables us to rightly approach the Lord. He tore the veil that kept distance between Israel and the Lord. God dwelled among the Israelites through a tent. Now, he dwells within his people through the Spirit. You're listening to The Chosen People, which is produced and sponsored by Chosen People Ministries. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, we're in the biblical season known as the Fall Feasts, and in a book that's written by our very own Mitch and Zahava Glazer, titled The Fall Feasts of Israel, the three biblical festivals of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot are examined in depth. And we're inviting you to go on a journey with Mitch and Zahava as they share the biblical roots of these feast days the celebration of these days in the time of the Messiah, and how this specially set-apart season is celebrated by Jewish people today. This book is an invaluable guide designed to help you understand the biblical and spiritual significance as a believer in Messiah. The fall feasts are unique among the appointed times of the Lord, called Moedim, because the lessons they teach form a natural progression of thought from the Feast of Trumpets, which teaches repentance, to the Day of Atonement, which focuses on redemption, and the Feast of Tabernacles that talks about the good result of rejoicing. And you can request your free book by visiting us online at chosenpeople.com radio. That's a free copy of the Moody Press edition of the Fall Feasts of Israel by going to chosenpeople.com radio.
Or you can ask for the Fall Feast of Israel when you call us at 888-293-7482. And when you connect with us today, please don't forget to let us know where and how you're listening to this program. And now let's wrap up today's program with the Aaronic Benediction. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmarecha Ya'er Adonai panavalecha v'yichunecha Yisa Adonai panavalecha V'yaseim lecha Shalom May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and be gracious to you. May the face of the Lord shine upon you and give you peace. B'Shem Shel Yeshua HaMashiach, Sar Shalom, in the name of Jesus the Messiah, the Prince of Peace.